Hello everyone, I'm Michael Lee, the Publicity Chair for the Magnetism and Magnetic Materials Conference coming up on October 31st in Minneapolis. What you're about to hear is the first interview in a series we've been working on with invited speakers and other notable attendees for the conference in Minneapolis. My goal here is to learn what I can from these knowledgeable researchers, and in the process, I hope to provide listeners with insightful background on conference sessions they may not yet be familiar with. My first guest is Dr. Laura Green, the Chief Scientist at the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory, as well as the Marie Kraft Professor of Physics at Florida State University. While she has an impressive record of research on quantum materials and superconductivity, it's her extensive experience with science diplomacy that I wanted to hear more about. Dr. Green will be speaking at the special conference session on making a difference in magnetism outside the laboratory, and as you're about to hear, her work on encouraging an interconnected, equitable, and diverse scientific community across the globe has only become more pertinent with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. I'll let Dr. Green take it from here. I'm sitting here in Krakow, and my father was actually born in Warsaw, um, and, uh, and I'm not going to go to Auschwitz. My family's Jewish, and so my my parents were always very supportive of human rights. Um, and uh, so I was somewhat interested in that uh, at some level. And then when I was in graduate school, Kurt Gottfried, who literally passed away like three days ago, he was a professor of physics at, um, at Cornell, um, asked me if I would uh, host a woman who had been in jail for a couple of years in Argentina under the Peronus time. And she he helped her get out under something called the right of option which meant that if another country took one of these prisoners of conscience and, you know, and so I, I answered with hell yes. And, and that sort of started me more and more on the human rights for science, science, human rights. Mm -hmm. and, and through the years, I, I've done a lot of traveling and I've seen a lot of uh, problems with scientists and barriers. And I got very, very interested in science diplomacy. And in fact, I wrote an article on this um, in 2017 because actually I co-authored it with Warren Pickett at Davis. Um, there were several of us that were invited to visit Tehran University. Um, uh, and, um, and so uh, Mohammed Akhavan, who got us the visas, was very hard for him to do it. He was able to get the visas, he said, because I was president of the American Physical Society that year. At the very last minute, the US government wouldn't let us go. And, and that, that, that's, a, uh, that's a big hit for diplomacy. That's a big hit for what you need is, you know, I talk about the classic science diplomacy of the 50s and 60s, where we had the Soviet and the American physicists work together, even though they were highly contentious times with a lot more nuclear weapons than we have now. But the scientists continued to work together. And, and that kind of um, uh, diversity really helped solve some of the unsolved problems of our time. One of them was, I think they really contributed a lot and most people will agree, the BCS theory of superconductivity, one of the great successes of the 20th century. Um, so, so I've always continued to do that. I was, my meeting two weeks ago was in Duisburg, Germany, where uh, it was another meeting with the same guy, Mohammed Akhavan and Iranian students. Even though I can't go to Iran anymore, he invited me again and I'm, I'm just not gonna go, I can't. Um, uh, for a variety of reasons, but I, I'll keep my discussion open. Um, and I think one thing that's happening right now, so anyhow, I've been interested in that for years and years and years. I've written articles on it. I've gone to these meetings. I'm going to one in Turkey in a few weeks where just to interact with people 
in developing countries to help them out and not just to help them out, but scientists need to understand there's this, there's these gems of people that we're not, you know, taking advantage of in, in, in these countries that can't interact as much. So it's, it's not just helping, it's also making sure that we have the diversity that we need and making use of people that we wouldn't know about. Um, so, so I do a lot of workshops on um, negotiation skills, all kinds of things like that, publishing in peer-reviewed journals, how to give talks, uh, networking and stuff like that, besides my scientific talks. Um, and, and I just think it's very important. I will say that right now, and I'm on record of saying this more recently, science diplomacy has changed with the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And uh, the you know it's an act of war, and uh, it's not it's not a cold war, and I think it's time for, and and different people have really made statements on that. For the first two months of the war, CERN didn't publish any papers uh, because the Russian I'm sorry because the Polish and the German physicists did not want to publish with the Russian physicists. What they did is they finally made a change. They're not listing authors anymore. It's a different kind of science diplomacy, okay? Mm -hmm. um, Switzerland, who never took a stand on anything, is sanctioning Russia. I'm a vice president of something called IUPAP, IUPAP, the International Union of Pure and Applied Physicists. And uh, they were trying to figure out what to do. So if a Russian physicist wants to attend an IUPAP-sponsored or endorsed conference, they have to sign a statement that says that um, their byline is not General Golovka, their byline is IUPAP, and that they are not actively supporting a war at the present time. And so uh, that's a much weaker statement, but I'm sure a lot of Russian physicists won't take, won't sign it because it might put them in danger. So, so I guess one of the things that I would bring up at this conference is that science diplomacy has changed in the last few years and and what do we do about it now yeah so do you think some of these changes you know within you know since the since the russian you know invasion um do you think some of these changes are going to be long-term beneficial setting up you know strategies on how to handle um you know similar situations where you know maybe a scientist is not you know, in, in a position where they can't maybe freely express themselves, but they're able to continue to engage and, and contribute? Do you think that? Yeah, that, that is exactly. So, so, um, so, you know, people said, why are you doing this now for Ukraine? And I, and I think one of the reasons is, is that we're more and more aware, we've made mistakes in science diplomacy in the past, you know, different, you know, and, and what we've seen happen in country after country, whether it's the United States or China or Ukraine or Brazil, I can go on and on and that, that, you know, we've seen a real split in the population. And, uh, and you know, now we, we just, I don't think scientists can just be blind. So one of, the, one, of my, one of my examples is that, let's say you have a football team that's not very good, okay? And so you start bringing in better players and you have better coaches and you have better trainers. And after 20 years, you have an NCAA top five or top 10 team, right? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about football teams and colleges because I'm at Florida State, right? Yeah. And, uh, but then you can hire a bad coach and within a semester, you can lose it all. 
And I look at what's happened in, in Russia. And by the way, I've had a lot of discussions here. Not everyone agrees with me. But I gave a talk on science diplomacy at the meeting a couple of weeks ago. And it was the day after Gorbachev died. And so that in understanding what happened there is that uh, Gorbachev's perestroika and, and glasnost, it's believed and written by many learned people that this had a play in the fall of the Soviet Union. Okay. Why? Because what held the Soviet Union together was the atrocities and and the and the uh what do you call it? not the lies, I'm using the wrong word, but but um um I'm forgetting the right word now because it's late here and you know, but but uh but but the um just uh, I'm forgetting the word right now, but but just that they weren't truthful to the public. Okay, they weren't open, and uh, there were more and more freedoms. You know, Perestroika was let's let's smooth over the the boundaries between the very rich and the very poor. Glatz knows let's be more open, but it's but it's not having those things of what held the Soviet Union together. Now there are many many other things. There's economics. There's Afghanistan that played into the fall of the Soviet Union. And the world as a whole agrees that the fall of the Soviet Union was a good thing, okay? But now Russia is very split. There's people that consider Gorbachev as hero and just the opposite. And, and Putin is on record of saying in 2005, and I won't use the exact correct words, that the greatest failure of the 20th century was the fall of the Soviet Union. So now we're seeing something that was more and more freedom, more and more openness. And so the system was changing. And now there's a leader there that's trying to stop that. Can we sit just like the football team? Can we watch those democracies and those freedoms go away without saying something, without making an action? So my feeling is that it's really going to be very, very hard on the Russian physicists if we don't have full open interaction. But in the long term, we hope that that will help create long term global uh, transmission of ideas and people across borders and boundaries. And then can we use this for other, you know, as a template for other countries? You know, you know, the argument is why didn't you do anything in Syria? You know, so, you know, but we're doing it now. And so let's take a look, what is the right thing for the planet and for the scientists and for the people in these countries? Okay, and so how do you get, you know, directly engaged with, with efforts like this when you, um, you know, is this is this initiatives coming down from the government that you're, jumping into? Is this starting with, with people like you creating, creating movement? I, I it happens all different ways, but what, what do you find most effective for you? Okay. So, so um, diplomacy started in, I forget the 13th century BCE with the Pharaohs. Okay. And then the new diplomacy didn't happen until the 20th century, which was besides leaders and, um, and diplomats, just citizens would get involved. And then a subset of that is science diplomacy. So, so you know, what we do in, in most cases is just make sure that we interact, right? I, you know, I, you know, I'm Jewish and I sit there and work in different countries with people from the Palestinian Authority. I was invited to go to the Palestinian Authority this year and I couldn't make it. Um, so that's what you want to do is, is discuss science make sure the lines are open. And then it, I don't know if you want to call it trickle down, but, but just help generally get across that people are people. You want to, you know, IUPAC 
had many of these women in physics conferences and you meet women from Albania and all over the world. And, you know, what do they want to do? You talk about your science, right? You talk about the difficulties in funding, how to analyze the data. And before you know it, you're talking about family and food you like, right? And, and it, it's just building ties across borders and boundaries. Um, and and that, that's how you can really have, have an effort, have a, you know. And then there's the other thing of human rights, which I work on also, which is um, you, you identify scientists that are in danger, that are prisoners of conscience, that, things that I've been involved in a long time. And I've been a member of Amnesty International for more years than I care to tell you, probably 45 years or something. Um, but, um, but, you know, all you do is just say, hey, this person is in jail and we're worried about their health. Are they getting their medication? Are they getting their spouse's letters? And you just bring that up and then you can bring this up and advertise that. And, and that has actually been somewhat effective. So I've been in, in APS, AAAS and the National Academy involved in some of these human rights causes. And, and there, there have been some successes, although you're never really sure if you had the success, but, but there, I can give you cases. Um, and it, it doesn't hurt. And before you get involved in something like that, of course, you find out, is it, is it their advantage or disadvantage? So right now we've got on our eye and some Russian physicists that are in jail. Um, so, some before Ukraine uh, that maybe were, fell into disfavor with the government and some since Ukraine. And so you identify them and then you have to find out from their family or lawyers if by writing a letter like that is going to be, will not do harm. And then you follow through with that. Right. So you have to be careful that what you're what you're doing is is moving things in the right right direction. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have do you have you know so you say you write to their families and their lawyers? Do you have support from? You no, know, we write to the leaders. We write to Putin. We okay. we write to um, Erdogan. We we write to the president of Iran. You know, we we write all those people, and just make sure there's a lot of CCs. Mm -hmm. Okay, and we try not to involve families in those letters. We will say, you know, this person, Omid Kokabi, has been in a, this is a famous story that I worked on for years. Um, uh, um, you just write, you know, the, we, he's got health problems. We want to work on that. And uh, Negris Mohammadidi was another one. I kept an eye on some Iranian physicists. Um, and you just keep an eye on them. And hopefully, as time goes on, um, you don't say to Rohini, you don't say this was illegal for you to arrest them and they're not being held. You know, you say, you know, this person has developed uh, lung problems or Kokabi got cancer and, you know, can, can they've been in the hospital? Can he stay the rest of his sentence with his parents home? You know, and, and so you just do gentle things like that just to make sure that they know the world is aware of what's going on. Mm -hmm. That's all you so, okay. Um, so then maybe in terms of tying it back to, you know, the audience and how, how, how you know, those of us that aren't directly engaged with it can get, you know, a better sense of, of how, how, you, how you help with this. Um, what are, you know, the easiest ways for, for someone to get into this? Um, okay, so, um, so, if the societies do this. So if you go to the American Physical Society website mm -hmm. and you look for human rights 
or you look for, uh, it's actually the Committee of Mono, is the Committee for the International Freedom of Scientists. Um, they identify cases. The National Academy identifies cases. Um, the uh, AAAS just started. They stopped for on, they're doing it again. And the Magnetic Society does a lot of this. I just took a picture of one of the, one of my friends was, let me see if I can find this picture now. So uh, the IEEE Magnetic Society has a Magnetism for Ukraine program. You can donate to these. I've been donating, right? Florida <laughs> State, National Academy. So these are things where <coughs> some of it will be used to help support people to leave the Ukraine and have um, and have uh, postdocs and everything. There's plenty of things to donate, but also it's to build it's to help build up Ukrainian science again. So this one, I don't say, I don't know if I can <laughs> send this to you. Um, I, I don't know how to do that, but uh, basically. Uh, the person who you can contact is one of the people that's running this conference is Valentin Novosad, V-A-L-E-N-T-Y-N Novosad. Uh, he couldn't make it to this one. And the other one is Sarah Maschek, M-A-J-E-T-I-C-H. And, and there's one other person, Andre Chumak, I don't know him. But what they've done is uh, it's, it's to support Ukrainian researchers to assist in recovery of Ukraine science and they've allocated a bunch of money and I'm sure they will take uh, other kinds of donations. And uh, they've made some real, um, you know, they, they asked for proposals and they're handing out the money now. So that's that's something that you might be interested in. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's like a perfect, <laughs> probably should have known that before we before I called you. <laughs> um, not, that it's, not that it's the most important part um, of this realm, but how, how has your involvement with, with the, you know, kind of this this effort fed back into your own research. Does it change your motivations, your specific topics, or how you recruit yeah. students and so, postdocs? I didn't do any of this stuff until mm -hmm. I was in my middle forties. I mean, I did a little bit, a little yeah. bit, but it wasn't. But you know, my career, you know, I I was a, you know, I I got my PhD at Cornell, then I worked as a postdoc, then a member of staff at Bell Labs for about nine years. And then I became professor at University of Illinois, and I was there for 23 years. And I really did, you know, I had little kids. I had was building up a laboratory. I, I moved a laboratory and was building it. And I didn't really have much time for that. I did a little bit. I always supported all through my life. I supported these things, but it really wasn't until um, much, much later that I had the time for that. So I don't tell, so for students and, and young people that are interested in this, I encourage them to pursue it, but um, but don't, you know, make sure that their career is in order, you know, because you can kind of get lost in all this stuff. But, but uh, you know, I'm, uh, you know, when, when my, you know, I, I've been doing this a lot and I just, I was doing it more and more and more. My career is more and more established. I can do more from a distance. And now as chief scientist of the Magnet Lab and with some of my other appointments in IEPAP, I was on the AAAS board. I just rolled off of that and PCAST. I, I don't have time to do research now. So I'm pretty happy with what I'm doing. <laughs> I miss it. I miss turning the knobs and transferring helium, but um, but it's okay. I had a good run. So Helium's expensive now anyways. You don't want to. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> You don't want to do that. Um, so we've, we've talked about some of the specific work that you have done and how you know this, this huge impact of, of the Russia-Ukraine um, situation, but what, what's something else in the realm of, of science diplomacy that um, you're either really optimistic about or really think 
um, isn't as focused on by, by, by everyone involved at the moment. Just some, some idea or, you know, place or, you know, any, anything that's not currently the priority, but you think um, would, would, be, would be beneficial to get into. I, I believe on inter, international global collaboration. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the reasons is because if you want to do work at the Magnet Lab or CERN, you got to travel to these facilities, okay? So that has to remain open. Um, there's the science diplomacy aspect. Uh, places like Sesame, which is the uh, light source in Jordan, you know, they're doing good work, but the main reason for that was to bring many countries together where we have Israel and Palestinian Authority and Iran all involved. And if you look, you can look at the Sesame website and see who's involved. Um, uh, so I guess, to, um, so what I want to see happen is that we still have to worry about um, national securities. So some governments are really worried about their citizen scientists traveling because of security. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether you've, it, I don't even have to mention countries, but you know, there's worries in the United States and China and in every country, what about the security? What I would like to see happen is to have our scientists in the United States and in all countries be taught, how can you travel and be vigilant? How can you make sure that you keep the basic research uh, lines open so we can continue to collaborate across the world, but you know, don't let them into your computer system if there's things that you really don't want um, competitors or, or, um, or countries to have. And so I would like to see if we can find a way in the United States to make sure we maintain our international collaborations with national security vigilance. And I don't know how to do that. Now mm -hmm. that I work at a national laboratory, I'm trained to do that. I don't travel to many, many countries with my laptop or, or even check my magnet lab email. Um, so, you know, how do we do that and make sure to, you know, what people are worried about that you have someone that's not educated in this, they travel around the world and all of a sudden that's an inlet to let national security interests be compromised. And so I think the long-term goal is making sure that we know how to continue these international collaborations. Well, that will make sure that we continue them if we can do it so our countries don't tell us not to. Right, they're actual just tangible skills that, that people can learn yeah. that, that lower the barriers to all of this. Yeah. Correct, good sense. way to say it. <laughs> well, you said it. So. Um, you, you really burned through all my questions before I could ask them. Um, is, is there anything else that you think um, you're not sure I understood correctly or that you just generally want to get um, your point across on? Any general misconceptions about, about this realm? No, I gave, I gave a plenary talk here on, on Monday and there were lots and lots of questions from the, I'm not looking away from you, I'm just thinking yeah. uh, about the conferees. And one of the things that I mentioned is that I'm the vice president of ethics and, and outreach for IUPAP. And I, I mentioned that one of the things I wanted to do was collect data from societies, what was considered ethical behavior. And I would start with traditional academic misconduct like misuse of public funds, plagiarism, 
you know, fabrication of data, because different societies and different countries have different views on that. And can we become a storehouse just to see what different people have? And then I said, after we did that, we go into what many societies has gone into, which is the quote, non-traditional scientific misconduct, which is still scientific misconduct, which is um, sexual misconduct and harassment. And that is scientific misconduct. And, and you know, different societies have gone at, at that. And I will tell you, a lot of people have come up to me, especially women that aren't from America, um, that's saying, oh, well, what do we do about this? What do we do about this? And it's something that we've been thinking about a lot in the United States. Uh, the American Geological Union was probably leaders in this. Uh, APS now has, uh, you know, many, many uh, places, societies have codes of conduct. And at the American Physical Society, if I see someone else that I don't think is following the code of conduct, I am required to report that. Nothing necessarily has to happen, but you're required to report it. So I would like to see an international code of conduct with teeth where we can help with all kinds of ethical problems on the planet. And that, and that is like, what's plagiarism? What's misuse of public funds? When you call the data fabricated? When is someone feeling unsafe in their environment? You know, and so, you know, one of the women came up to me and said, I feel like when I go to a conference, it's like a dating service. I just don't, you know, and so I, I think it's better in Amer most American conferences now, but it's still a problem and it's something that needs to be addressed and thought about. So yeah, definitely. that's something I've thought a lot about. <laughs> and, and, you know, you have these things like people will say, oh, but you can get anyone in trouble by accusing them. And I said, that's right. I can accuse anybody of anything, but get it on the table. If I accuse you of stealing my wallet, let's figure out what happened. If I accuse someone else of, you know, let, let's people get accused, but you need adjudication. So within the realm of science, have a have a system to yeah. flesh it out. Yeah. It's complicated. With no doubt. Especially across no, any across great university knows how to deal with traditional scientific misconduct. Mm -hmm. We know how to do that. I've dealt with it myself. I know how to do it. This stuff, we're still figuring it out. So I would once again like to thank Dr. Green for meeting with me, and I encourage everyone to check out the IEEE Magnetic Society Ukraine initiative she mentioned during the interview. The initiative's purpose is to assist in the support and recovery of science and technology in Ukraine, with the goal to promote Ukrainian R&D and professional community in magnetics. There will be a link in the description. I would also like to thank you all for listening. I anticipate releasing 10 of these interviews before the conference begins at the end of October, so keep an eye out for new episodes.